I remember the scene as if it were yesterday. Now, the name of the film was The Mark of the Beast. It's kind of a low-budget movie produced by a group that was responsible for really kind of a series of apocalyptic end-time films. So the, the scene began with a man inconspicuously yet nervously entering a grocery store. Uh, he was there to procure food for his family. They were hungry. But he was missing one thing, a mark on either his forehead or hand that would allow him to purchase what he had come from. So the mark, you, you could see other shoppers bearing it. Really, it really didn't look like much. It's a series of lines that formed a barcode but it was the barcode that permitted the electronic exchange of funds, kind of a, a cryptocurrency, if you will. So as the man placed food items into his cart, you could, you could see it. He becomes more and more nervous, and it's finally checkout time. He had no intention of going through that checkout line where he would be discovered. So looking around, he sees an opening, an empty lane that allows him to casually, quietly slip out of the store. That is, until alarms began to sound. Running at breakneck speed, it didn't really didn't take the store guards long to pull the man down to the ground and to demand to see his mark. Well, he had none. Cut to the next scene, where execution awaited. This man, along with several other individuals, were slated to die by a government that would not tolerate those who refused to receive their mark. What made the scene memorable, I really, I really have never been able to get this out of my head, was actually the method of execution, guillotine. Slowly and pretty methodically, the man was placed into this death device, and then this whoosh is heard and a loud bang, and in the next scene, a covered body is being hauled away, leaving a lot of questions. What, what was this mark, and, and why did the man refuse it? Why, why was he killed? I mean, killed for not having a barcode? What, what actually is this mark of the beast, and what does the Bible say about it, or does it? In today's podcast, I want to return to the last section of Daniel's dream in chapter 7 of his book. Uh, while Daniel, uh, I think we know this, does not specifically address the mark contained in this movie that I witnessed during the late 1990s, it, it actually does set before us the subject of the one demanding the mark, someone or someones that the Bible calls the Antichrist. So let me ask you a question. When you hear the word Antichrist, what images, what thoughts come to your mind? Uh, do you think of Antichrist as a monster, perhaps a government enforcing its mark on you, is your image that of a man, a person? How, how does the Bible use the word Antichrist? And is this something or is this someone that we're supposed to be watching for or fearing? Or, or is there more to the idea of Antichrist than meets the eye? Today, I really want to explore this with you, as it certainly became a part of Daniel's dream so many years ago. As we begin our, our journey, I just want to tell you that over the course of my lifetime, if there's been one subject in the Bible that has gripped the attention of people both within and outside of the church, it would be the subject of Antichrist. I don't think we could even count the number of books, 
movies that have surrounded this topic going back actually decades. So, some of them meant to be funny, some not so much. Uh, one movie database lists movies such as Rosemary's Baby, 1968, or The Omen, 1976. There was a film simply titled Antichrist in 2009. And, of course, there is The Exorcist, which arrived at theaters Christmas Day. Think about that. The Day of Christ's Mass, 1976. I remember watching it and being scared to death. I'm, I'm telling you, there's been a lot of material produced about Antichrist in my lifetime. But, but two productions in particular have stood out. One, The Late Great Planet Earth, a book written by Hal Lindsey, and Left Behind, actually a series of books, ultimately turned into films created by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. I was in high school when the first book, The Late Great Planet Earth, came out. I still remember the stir that it created. Uh, the book was published by Zondervan, respected uh, publishing company, turned into a film now narrated by the great Orson Welles in 1978. Uh, if you've never read it, the book was loosely based upon sections of Daniel, Ezekiel, and, as you would suspect, the Revelation. It suggested that the 1970s were the era of Antichrist. And as evidence, uh, the author, Lindsay, cited the development of, of a European Union, which uh, would, he believed, become a one-world government, uh, the re-embodiment of the old Roman Empire. Additionally, he suggested that the increase in earthquakes and wars and famines at, at that time would lead to a global rapture in which only those who follow Jesus as their Savior would be swooped off planet Earth, taken up into heaven. In turn, this would initiate a thousand-year period of testing here on earth, during which people who had not believed in Jesus would be given a second chance to do so prior to his second return. In, in fact, he predicted this rapture would occur no later than, get this, 1988. What I, what I remember about the book was the fear that it created in the high school I attended. It's a public high school in San Antonio, Texas. I remember Bible study groups promoted uh, this book's thesis, they suggested that, listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you had better start praying and you'd better start paying attention. Looking back, I, I kind of think that what the book promoted was akin to evangelism by threat or, or evangelistic terrorism. I, I don't know which word could, could fit it better, which in my opinion really doesn't have a lasting effect. Not to mention the fact that 1988 came and went without any sign of rapture at all, which, of course, leads to the second series of books published between the years 1995 and 2007, the Left Behind series. Maybe you've read some of the books in the series. Maybe you've seen their, their movie counterparts. Most of them were turned into movies. Some of the titles include the original Left Behind, The Rising, uh, The Tribulation Force, The Mark, and, and Armageddon. And, and one of the things, I think, that made this series maybe even more effective than the late great planet Earth, though both books work for the same premise, is its novel-like approach. Uh, throughout the series, uh, the Antichrist is given a name. Some of you will remember this. Nikolai Carpathia, who is cast as a political, religious leader. His character, according to LaHaye, was developed out of the, quote, Man of lawlessness, end quote, imagery in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. If you remember, that scripture suggests 
that the second coming of the Lord, <clears throat> or the day of the resurrection, will not come until a man appears who opposes God, calls himself divine, and takes his, his seat in the temple of God. Appropriately, uh, in the books, the character of Nikolai Carpathia rises up to become the Secretary General of the United Nations, promises to bring peace and stability to all nations, and yet actively opposes the movements of God on earth. He is the Antichrist, but is he? So while both of these popular book series stirred up their fair share of fear towards being ready for the Lord's return, is fear ever the Bible's emphasis? And who or what, really, I, I mean scripturally, is the Antichrist? Is he a monster that the movies make him out to be? Is he a political leader? How, how does the scripture use the term Antichrist? What, what does it point to? Some years ago, uh, I was privileged uh, personally to participate in a small class on the book of Revelation led by a man considered to be a world-renowned eschatologist or teacher on end times, Professor Lewis Brighton, now, now in heaven. What I'll always remember from his class was the very precise exegetical approach he always used when approaching a biblical topic. He insisted on using rules of interpretation or hermeneutics that would assure an accurate understanding. When you apply that to the topic of the Antichrist, what I learned from Brighton were three primary things. I'll just walk through these with you first is the fact that the term Antichrist is actually used in the scriptures both in the singular as well as in the plural. Now, I, I think that's significant. Most authors or filmmakers approach the Antichrist only what? In the singular. They set us up to look for one very particular person who will come in the future and who has the precise characteristics that they prescribe through their understanding of an assortment of scriptures, including Daniel, Ezekiel, and Second Thessalonians, and of course the Revelation. Scripture, however, speaks of more than one Antichrist. I want you to listen to the words of John. First John chapter four, John writes, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. They are from the world. I want you to note two things here. The Antichrist is present already at the time that John writes these words. This is the first century. Secondly, the Antichrist is a they and a them. The term is pluralized. Okay, you say, well, yeah, but he uses the term spirit of the Antichrist. All right, well, listen to the same author, John, 1 John chapter 2. He does it again, pluralizes the term Antichrist. I'm going to read this to you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Quote, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. What this means goes, I, I think, beyond what most authors and movie makers set in front of us when they present the topic of Antichrist. Indeed, Brighton suggests that when you study the topic, a more layered approach should be taken towards actually biblically understanding the term. And this is the second thing that he teaches. Uh, the term Antichrist, first and foremost, applies to guess who? Satan 
himself. Appropriately, we could call Satan, all capitals, the Antichrist. Think about this with me. There's a number that we generally associate with the Antichrist. What, what is it? Six, six, six. So, so what does a number mean? For years, I've heard and I've watched people try to turn this number into all kinds of peoples and all kinds of things, including the Internet. Interestingly, the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the letter WOW, which corresponds with our English letter W. Put it together, 666 equals www dot internet. But is that really what the number means? Well, not, not according to the way that Hebrew apocalyptic literature utilizes numerology. So how does 666 work according to the Hebrew Bible? Let me say this simply. In Hebraic numerology, the number for Jesus is the number seven. You see this utilized throughout both the Old and New Testaments to apply to Jesus. Take it, take it then, a trinity of sevens, and you have what? The number seven, seven, seven. Now stop there and ask yourself this question. Who wants to be Jesus? Who wants to sit upon his throne? Pretty, pretty simple, right? Satan. But he can't. Why? He's fallen short. His number isn't seven, it's six, one short. Pluralize the number and you have a trinity of sixes, six, six, six. It's Satan's number. He is the Antichrist, described in Revelation chapter 12 as having lost the war in heaven and yet now at war with the saints of God. Uh, he's the ultimate Antichrist. That's, that's layer one. So what, what's layer number two? Well, this is the third thing that Brighton teaches. Beyond the Antichrist all caps, Satan, is a plurality of antichrists. These are, as he would state, every human authority and everything of human nature that Satan can corrupt and control and use in his warfare against the church and true followers of Jesus. That would include politicians, political agencies, political parties, social agencies, the church, I did say the church, as in the apostate church, economics, philosophies, educational systems, and individuals. In this sense, I, th I think it's proper to say, hey, you want to see the Antichrist? Just look around you. At any given point in history, Satan is at work through a plurality of people and agencies, some of whom have, as Nero and other emperors in Roman times, even called themselves God and have, as the Second Thessalonians scripture that we read earlier suggests, taken up a seat both in the literal and figurative temple of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I believe that gives us a much more realistic and biblical understanding of Antichrist than does Hollywood or the authors of popular books. Uh, th this understanding paints a very real picture of the many ways that Satan, the ultimate Antichrist, is at work through many Antichrists in our world right now. I like to say it this way. You can read about the Antichrist in the Bible, but you can also read about it in the newspapers today. Look around, you will see his mark. I think this is what Daniel's pointing to in the last part of his dream in chapter 7. If you remember with me, Daniel's carried with him a dream that he dreamt during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar in 553 BC. He's carried the dream with him 14 years. He kind of wrapped it up inside of himself. Now, its imagery, I, I think, is relevant to this day. Remember that the dream presented to Daniel four beasts, 
each of which correspond to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and which Daniel interpreted. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the four beasts were four metals, but both the beasts and the metals represent the same thing, empires, which would rise and fall in the course of history, beginning with Babylon, which would fall to Persia, represented in Daniel's dream as a lion with two wings. In turn, Persia would fall to Greece, represented by a leopard with four wings and four heads. Daniel wouldn't live to see this, but it would occur within history. Finally, the fourth beast would rise up. This represented Rome. Here's where the dream gets interesting. The fourth beast is described as having ten horns, horns being the symbol for wisdom and power, and ten being the number for God. Why don't you just listen to Daniel's words in chapter 7, verse 8. Lord, would you guide our thoughts today? It reads as follows. It, this beast, Rome, was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. Let me stop there for a moment. Here's what we know. Many of the emperors of Rome, the, 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 the horns, set themselves before people as what? As God. Literally, they demanded worship of themselves. In this, they acted as antichrists. They came against the things of God. And in particular, one. I want you to listen very carefully to the next words that Daniel uses as he describes this dream. He writes, I'm still in verse 8, quote, I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking, listen to this, great things. Now, we're going to get into this further as we enter into chapter 8, but I want you to hear this. Daniel, again, he would not himself live to see this, but he is pointing to a political ruler who would set himself up as divine, speaking words that belong to God and demanding worship, while persecuting the true church, one who would serve all capitals, the Antichrist. Again, I believe we actually get to learn which political ruler this is as we get into chapter 8. So what the scripture does for us is cause us today to just stop and ask some hard questions. I'm going to set three of them in front of us, and then we'll close out for the day. So question number one is this. How do the scriptures change your view of Antichrist? Here's what I've discovered. Too many people really do. They have like a Hollywood view of what Antichrist is. And guess what? It's not helpful. In some ways, I think that the Antichrist, Satan, wants us to have an image of a monster or or a singular entity. You know why? It keeps us from seeing what is actually happening right now before our our eyes. Leads me to the second question. Question two. Where, through what people and agencies, do you actually see Antichrist, plural, most effectively at work in our world today? Where do you see him impacting our world right now? I have to tell you, everywhere I look, I see his thumbprint. He's at work hard through multiple agencies, including the apostate church. And then question three, I want to make this more personal. Where has the Antichrist made inroads into your life? Seriously, I, I do. I want you to think about this. Where are you being pulled away from? Usually very subtly. Who you're meant to be and from 
what you know to be right. I want to leave you with those three questions today as we enter into Holy Week. As this podcast is being recorded, we're really only days away from Easter. And I want you to know something. I want you to know that the Christ has overcome the one or ones who come against him. He's also able to overcome in your life as well. If there's places right now where your walk with him needs to be strengthened, I want to celebrate with you the risen Christ who is able to do all things. Uh, We're going to take a one-week break after Easter from our recording, so stay with me. We'll be back two weeks after Easter with new content. Until then, I want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I want to wish you and your family a blessed Easter. Keep me in your prayers and know you're in mine. Until we're together again, have a God-sized week.